Hey, this is Paul Spellman. This is my podcast, episode nine of I Have a Story About That. Welcome back. Glad you all are still listening in. Today we're going to talk about uh, Comanches and Texas Rangers in the mid-1800s. On February 15th, 1839, a place called Spring Creek in central Texas, a battle took place between Texas Rangers and a band of Comanche warriors. I'm going to back up on that story and lead up to it, tell the story, and then the rest of the story. Hope you enjoy it. So the Comancheria, which is a great part of what we today call the Hill Country of Texas, extending north into the Panhandle area. And on many occasions, the Comanche would wander down through the Hill Country, come down the Colorado River Valley in search of cattle and adventure and sometimes they would come just down into areas like DeWitt County. Uh, there were great groves of uh, wild pecan trees growing and this was candy for the Comanche and they, they would love to wander down and steal what they could steal and um, ride hundreds of miles deep into Texas. This particular time was October of 1838. Matilda Lockhart, a little 12-year-old girl, and four of her friends from the Putman family, James and three others, were out playing at the uh, edge of the fields near the pecan trees when materializing out of nowhere came a band of Comanche warriors who, without probably even thinking about it, quickly gathered up the five children, put them on horseback, and took off to the north. Matilda's father, Andrew Lockhart, and the Putnam uh, children's father, and a number of other neighbors quickly uh, were roused as a company to chase them down. And for several days, Andrew Lockhart led a group on the hunt for his children and for the Comanche, but unsuccessfully, the Comanche had disappeared. And once they had traveled, up into the hill country, there was no finding them. November went by, December was a difficult time for the families. This wasn't the first time that children had been kidnapped, but, and it wouldn't be the last either. Still, this was a terrible tragedy. The usual results were tragic. Ordinarily, the children were kept as slaves, servants, until they were of no further use and then usually left dead at a camp. But Andrew Lockhart and his family never gave up. They spread the word that uh, there had to be some way of tracking them down and finally got the attention of the Texas government. Texas at the time was an independent republic and they gathered up in January a group of Texas Rangers sending scouts up to the north into the far northern parts of the hill country to see if they could find any sign whatsoever of the Comanche band. These were likely Pinateca Comanche, the honey eaters, who were known far and wide to stray well down into Texas uh, during each year. Some scouts, probably Lapan Apaches, who were mortal enemies of the Comanche, discovered that um, they had found the Comanches possibly in a winter camp up in the northern part of the hill country, about a hundred miles north-northwest of Austin. 
And so um, John H. Moore, a famous Texas Ranger and Indian fighter, was called on to lead a band of Rangers, along with some Lapan Apache and some Tonkawa scouts as well, in search of the Comanche winter camp and hopefully, hopefully, prayerfully, to find the children still alive. So early in February, the, uh, the trek began. It was cold. It's a fairly bitter winter, the temperature in the 30s and 40s. Moore had gathered 50 rangers and several dozen of the Lapan Apache and Tonkawa scouts who had uh, led, the, uh, led the journey up. After about a week or so, they caught the trail. Lapan Apaches came back a couple of days later to say, yes, in fact, they had located the camp itself. It was nestled in its own orchard along a small stream about 30 miles away from where the rangers were at the time. And so very cautiously Moore led his rangers northwest another day or two. On the night of February 14th they had reached an area about a mile south of where the Comanches were camped. Had not been seen, had not been spotted as far as they knew. And so they made their plans. Moore got with the rangers and they talked with one of the Tonkawa scouts who had looked around that particular area. He had indicated that there was a small box canyon not too far away and from there a small um, creek bed that led north right into the Comanche camp itself. So during the night Moore led his rangers to the box canyon and there in the canyon he left the, uh, the horses, the ranger horses, each of the men gathered their rifles and ammunition and very quietly began a stalk up the creek bed in the middle of the night. The Tonkawa and the Lapan had headed out in other directions to scout the battle scene and to participate as needed under Moore's direction. And so for a couple of hours, the rangers crept up this creek bed as they reached the proximity of the Comanche camp, about uh, 75 yards south of where the Comanches were camped and apparently uh, sleeping, there was a small uh, kind of cliff area, about a 10-foot little escarpment, and then open land across the little stream bed to where the Comanches were. So Moore determined that this would be a good place to set up for an attack at first light. And the rangers scattered along this little escarpment, 25 on one side, 20 plus on the other, and waited. At first light, John Moore gave the signal, and a blast of fire from the rifles roamed across the open area and into the Comanche camp. With that, the rangers then slid down the escarpment, began as they're reloading to make their way quickly across that open area. The Comanches now awakened. Uh, jumping uh, out of their tents, um, shooting back as best they could, some taking off in one direction and another, others there staying for the fight. The fight became um, kind of general in every direction with uh, guns firing from both directions, bows and arrows uh, firing as well in the midst of all of that as the rangers reached the orchard itself where the, the Comanche teepees had been set up. Uh, another a volley of fire uh, came across from both sides and in the 
early early dawn hours the the fog the smoke from all the gunfire just enveloped the entire orchard and and all those uh, standing there firing at one another and the firing came to a very eerie stop because no one could see uh, in what direction the enemy stood and so they reloaded and as the rangers reloaded uh, the the smoke finally began to uh, dissipate and when it finally did and they were now armed for another volley of firing they realized that in that moment uh, in the smoke in the cloud in the fog the Comanches had disappeared had taken off to the north on foot and uh, had retrieved their ponies which were up on the other side of the camp and had taken off. The rangers looked about for any sign of Matilda Lockhart or the Putnam children. One of the rangers said he thought he might have seen some of the children at the first attack being grabbed by the um, Comanches as they uh, as they took off unsure exactly what had happened. Uh, there was no way to chase after the Comanche now, and so the rangers determined they needed to get back to the Box Canyon, retrieve their horses, and then resume the chase. And so running somewhat pell-mell back down uh, the, uh, the creek bed, they reached the Box Canyon, only to find that all the ranger horses were gone. They looked about, and also gone were the Lapan Apache, and the Tonkawa scouts, they too had disappeared in the midst of all of this, not willing to fight, not interested in the, the fight at that time, and off they had gone. But as it turned out, one of them reported sometime later that there had been Comanche scouts that, as they heard the first shots fired, realized what was going on. They had snuck around behind the rangers, and there had happened onto the Box Canyon, found the ranger horses, and had led them away. The Texas Rangers now, late morning, February 15, 1839, on foot. The Comanches had disappeared, and they had no real recourse except to walk back to Austin. So they did. It was a long and grueling walk back. It was uh, several of the Rangers had been wounded during the fighting. One of them died along the way and was buried in a small, shallow grave. Moore led the rest of the rangers back finally uh, several days later uh, to civilization. But the Comanches, and if the children had been with them, were gone. The battle at uh, Spring Creek, as it's called, uh, which took place uh, there in February of 1839, was an ignominious uh, defeat for the Texas Rangers and very frustrating for John H. Moore who seldom lost a fight with the with the enemy and their report back uh, was uh, one of um, very negative consequence. Now the rest of that part of the story is that um, nearly a year went by before there was any great event following up although soon thereafter uh, in some retribution, a band of Comanche uh, did ride back down uh, into the uh, area where Texas settlers uh, were living in March and April. There were raids and attacks that took place. And back and forth through the summer and into the fall. But as the situation continued to really go nowhere, both sides 
uh, began to open negotiations about the possibility of sitting down and talking about maybe bringing an end to these hostilities. The Comanche were never very good at that, never very interested in negotiating any kind of peace. But a year after the battle in Spring Creek, uh, a message came from the Penateca Comanche that they were willing, in fact, to, uh, to work out some kind of um, ceasefire, some kind of arrangement with the Texans. And in the negotiating, they agreed to meet in San Antonio on, in March of 1840, 13 months after the battle at Spring Creek. And so a building was um, there on the main square in old San Antonio. And on a March day in 1840, a band of some two dozen Comanches, men and women, walked into San Antonio. And they were guided to the square and to the council house and uh, ushered inside. When they arrived inside, they found there were a number of Texas Rangers and representatives of the Texas government there waiting uh, to speak to them. The first message that was communicated was an inquiry about the children that had been kidnapped. At first, the Comanches uh, in response said, we don't know anything that's what you're talking about. We don't have any idea about kidnapped children one way or another. That was not a good enough answer, and the, uh, the, the commander there uh, ordered them to give some information, give an answer. Uh, we all knew exactly what was going on, he said. At which point, one of the squaws there uh, in the group who was wrapped in a blanket, it was a cold day in March in 1840, uh, opened up the blanket, and there, standing against her, was 13-year-old Matilda Lockhart. Emaciated, lost a lot of weight, scars on her face and her arms. She looked terrible, but she was alive. Once the rangers had gotten over the shock of seeing this poor child there, they said, okay, but where are the others? And the Comanche representative said, there are no others. This was the only child we have. At which point, Matilda in a tiny, quiet little voice said, that's not true. The others are back in the camp. The Texan commander looked up at the uh, Comanche for an answer, and the Comanche simply smiled and mumbled something like, yeah, well, what are you going to do about it? And at that point, um, well, all hell broke loose in the council house. All of a sudden, the Indians uh, had knives, bow and arrow, a gun, and the rangers quickly pulled theirs. And in a very small area, this council house, uh, a fight broke out, spilled quickly out into the streets, where some of the other Comanches waiting outside also began to open fire on pedestrians, on civilians walking through the square at the time. And in general melee that lasted for another 15 or 20 minutes, about half of the Comanches were killed or wounded. A number of uh, passers-by were also killed, several of the rangers wounded. And in that, just the havoc of what was going on, uh, some of the Indians took off, heading out of town. Chased quickly by some of the others, Matilda was left behind, uh, rescued, uh, injured, emaciated, but all right. Sometime thereafter, later that day and into the next, they, uh, the rangers uh, chased down the Comanches, found the camp where they had been right before the council house fight, as it became known. The other children who'd been kidnapped were found dead, and the Comanches once again had managed to disappear.
off through the hill country they went back up past Spring Creek and farther to the north. Months later there would be a continuation of the fight that had gone on back starting in 1838. And that's part of a story that's really a, another story to tell sometime picking up after the council house fight. But I want to talk about the Spring Creek battle because here's the rest of that story. One of my uh, relatives, we talked about the Zadok Woods family. His youngest son, Henry Gonzalvo Woods, was actually one of the rangers who went to Spring Creek, who was there with John Moore uh, for the fight. And later he would tell stories about uh, the fight that took place. And, and when I was doing some research, both on the family and also on the council house fight, I decided it would be uh, interesting to see if I could track down exactly where that Spring Creek battle took place. I knew there were some historical markers uh, in that area, but I didn't know of anyone specifically at the specific battle site. And after I'd done some research uh, in the Handbook of Texas and some other resources, I realized that there wasn't a, a particular spot that had ever been identified. So I thought, well, I'll see what I can, I can do. I, I'll go up there and take a look. So I, I had the report that had been filed. I had the stories from my family. And so I made my way um, out of Austin uh, one day, drove up uh, Highway 71. If you drive out of Austin north uh, on Highway 71, a beautiful trip, uh, you drive about uh, 40 minutes or so to the town of Llano, a very beautiful little town. And then you turn north on Highway 16. Highway 16 is a, it's a great highway. You can go from San Antonio well up into North Texas. It's a beautiful, beautiful trip. If, if you ever just wanted to get on a beautiful road in Texas, and take a great road trip. Highway 16 would be one of my first recommendations. But you take Highway 16 uh, north uh, out of Llano and you then will come to the town of San Saba, about a hundred miles north-northwest of Austin, and the vicinity where the Battle of Spring Creek took place. So I arrived uh, in San Saba and I drove around for about 30 minutes. I, again, there's several historical markers here and there, some even having to do with the Comanche, some having to do with some other incidents uh, involved there sometime later um, along the way. But nothing that told me specifically here was fought the Battle of February 15, 1839. On the other hand, I had uh, a crudely drawn map from the original report that had been uh, filed back in 1839, and it showed a picture of the um, Box Canyon, of the uh, small creek bread that wandered north, of the little escarpment on either side had been drawn into the map, and then a batch of the teepees uh, just to the north where the camp had been found. It didn't say much more to give me many other landmarks, but I thought, well, um, I, uh, I'll take my best guess here. And so from what other research I had done and the lay of the land, I drove back out of San Saba, back down uh, Highway 16, about a mile, mile and a half south of um, San Saba. I parked my car, and there uh, was a barbed wire fence running alongside the road and um, on kind of an open field, uh, about waist high and prairie grass and so on, and a few uh, trees here and there. And so I... I crossed over the fence and I began walking. I walked about not quite a hundred yards. And by the absolute, uh, this is just nothing but real live luck, I practically fell into the box canyon. It was there, but you couldn't see it at the surface until you were literally standing on the precipice. And I, I looked down in this canyon. Again, uh, it's, it's just a big hole in the ground. 
you could see that you could maybe put 50 or 60 horses in there, but that would be pretty crowded. Uh, just to give you an idea, like a kind of a large corral, uh, but it was a big hole uh, in the ground. So I, I climbed down uh, the, the walls uh, into the bottom of the Box Canyon, and I, I looked around for a moment, and then sure enough, just on the very north edge is a tiny little uh, opening that uh, allows you to step uh, out of the Box Canyon. And so I did, and as I did, um, sure enough, there right in front of me, going to the north, was a small dry creek bed. And, and this creek bed was about... 50 feet wide and had its own little kind of um, escarpment on each side, its banks. And so I started walking. I knew from the report and from the map that it was one mile from the Box Canyon to where the battle had taken place. And so I began walking. I'd walked about half a mile when I encountered a, a flock of about uh, 50 or 60 sheep. And uh, they were not interested in getting out of my way and they pretty much filled up the creek bed at the time, so I sort of pushed and shoved and kicked my way through until I'd gotten through the sheep. Then I continued walking about another quarter mile or so. And lo and behold, I came out right where there's an open uh, little prairie area. On the other side, about 70 or 80 yards away, was an orchard. I looked to the left and to the right as I came out from the creek bed, and sure enough, there's this little escarpment about six, seven feet uh, up from the uh, the prairie, and I could just picture standing right there, those rangers laying there along that escarpment, waiting for first light, waiting for the signal from John Moore uh, to commence the attack. I could just see them running across that field uh, and into the orchard where the teepees had been set, a surprise attack against the Comanches. I, I could see how the fog the smoke from all the gunfire would envelop that whole area, and then on the other side of the orchard, uh, the Comanches disappearing off to the north, uh, onto their horseback, and off they went. And then imagining the rangers after the gunfight having to walk back down that creek bed, back to the Box Canyon, where by that time all their horses uh, had been stolen. It was a remarkable moment, I gotta tell you. I mean, you know, when people do research, a lot of you have done the same thing. Uh, when you do find that discovery, when you find that treasure, you find the very thing you're looking for, uh, it's pretty exciting. So I'm standing there, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking around. I'm thinking, well, I guess I could walk all the way back to my car. But I looked off to the right, uh, and about 100 yards away was a ranch house. I thought, well, I'll just go over to the ranch house and um, introduce myself. Maybe I can get somebody to take me back to the car. And so I started walking across this open field, realizing that I was going to walk up to this ranch house, and they will not have heard the sound of a car or a truck of any kind. And here's this person going to be coming walking out of the woods. And I was hoping that there weren't dogs or a shotgun waiting for me. But there wasn't much I could do at that point, so I just kept uh, walking forward. I walked right up under the steps of the porch, and just as I got there, the door opened, and a, a rancher looked out at me, and uh, I quickly identified myself, told him who I was, why I was there, where I'd come from. I, I probably never talked that fast in my life, and he stood there very patiently on the other side of the screen door as I uh, identified myself and told him how I'd gotten to where I was. And he kind of smiled um, after I told the story and opened the um, the screen door and shook my hand, introduced himself, and we stood there on the uh, 
front porch for a minute or two. I kind of retold the story and a little bit about the background. And I said, I asked him, I said, do you know anything about that particular battle? Because it really kind of took place right out here in this field in front of your ranch. And he paused for a moment. He looked out over the area and he looked back at me and said, oh yeah. He said, this ranch has been in my family for four generations. He said, let me tell you a story. He said, when I was a little kid growing up here, my great-grandfather owned this ranch. And we would come out here when it was time to uh, turn over the fields. And um, he would lead us as we went across those fields. And as the tractor turned up the dirt, we would go following behind us kids. And there would be arrowheads that would just be popping up to the surface. Dozens and dozens and dozens over and over again. And we'd gather them all up, and, and my great-grandfather and my grandfather uh, were great uh, uh, cigar smokers. So they had lots of uh, the wooden boxes for cigars, cigar boxes. And we'd put all those uh, arrowheads in those cigar boxes, and great-grandpa would put them in the barn. And then my grandfather did the same, and the grandkids would follow him, and then my father did the same, and my kids did did that as well, generation after generation. He said, let me uh, let me show you something. We stepped off the porch and walked around behind the ranch house, and there was a small um, little storage bin, den, barn kind of thing, maybe uh, 15 by 15. And he unlocked the door and opened it and reached in and pulled down the uh, string that uh, turned on the light. And we stepped inside, and I looked around in this uh, storage shed, and from floor to ceiling, on all four walls, were stacked hundreds of cigar boxes in every direction. And he walked over and he pulled one off and he handed it to me and I opened the cigar box and there were about seven or eight arrowheads in that cigar box. And I looked around at the, those walls and imagined seven, eight, ten, a dozen arrowheads in every one of those hundreds of boxes. And I didn't even say anything, and he just kind of laughed and nodded, and he said, yes, sir. He said, four generations of gathering up arrowheads from that field. He said, this was a winter camp of the Comanche. And my great-grandfather used to tell the story about a battle that had taken place here with Texas Rangers. So that's the rest of my story. I loved uh, that whole experience, not only being able to find the location, but uh, the whole rest of the story as well. As I, as he took me back to my car, um, there was a small little hill uh, not too far from there. Today, it's right across from where the uh, J.C. Smith Cattle Company and Ranch is. If you're heading up on Highway 16, just south of San Saba, County Road 301 heads off to the west. Uh, that's where the ranch is located, just to give you an idea if anybody wanted to go up there and take a look. But I walked up on that little rise uh, before I left and after the rancher had gone back home. And there on top of the rise, I could see for miles in every direction. And I also realized there on top of that rise, for about 25 feet in every direction, was piles and piles of flint and rock and stone, where I think young Comanche scouts had sat on the top of that hill generation after generation, making arrowheads, wandering about the future, watching for the enemy on the horizon. It was a great experience all the way around. I hope you enjoyed the story. We'll come back again and uh, tell another one soon, but um, 
This one, the San Saba Comanche fight. I hope you've enjoyed it. And this is Paul Spellman. I'll find something else to tell you a story about. Take care.